Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, again, it's good to be here with you all. Uh, if I, We haven't had a chance to, to meet yet. My name is Taylor Leachman, uh, the pastor here at Advent, and um, it is a joy uh, to be gathered together uh, this afternoon. And um, we, uh, we're so grateful that y'all are bearing with us uh, as, you know, we're, we're only a couple months into this church planning thing, and so every now and then we catch new things and, um, uh, and try new things, and so it's, it's not meant to be kind of guinea pig oriented, but rather um, that it's part of the fun and the beauty of, of being a small church plant. Um, and so uh, we are actually, for our first sermon series, going through the vision and values of who we are as a church, uh, the vision statement that we uh, exist to um, embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, to Rice University, to the surrounding neighborhoods. And we've since been going uh, through the values recently, the five values um, of, of who we are uh, and who we desire to be, kind of our aspirational uh, values. And so uh, we're actually in the last of the five this Sunday. But to remind us, the first was to embrace both truth and mystery. I think God speaks to us, but there are certain things because we are creatures that we can't possibly comprehend. And so when those two things kind of come in conflict with one another, it's meant to lead us to worship, um, not to haughtiness or pride. Secondly, to embody Jesus in kingdom ministry that Part of our reason for being named Advent is that we want for Jesus' model of coming to earth um, to be our own model for how we go out and do ministry. Third, we want to celebrate the good of God's creation, that we want to remember that far before Genesis 3 comes Genesis 1, right, where, Jesus, where God says that it is good. Number four, we want to make and form disciples in everyday spaces of life recognizing that um, it's not through the extraordinary, uh, not through all of those unique circumstances that we actually come to be formed more and more like Jesus, but it's actually the hours of our day. Uh, it's the days that we spend that add up into years that turn us more and more into Jesus Christ. And so this Sunday, we're going to be talking about the fifth and final, which is that we want to extend the joy of the first and second advent. Um, and so with that in mind, I'm going to read for us uh, this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Y'all can follow along with me in your bulletin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Um, Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that though we have not seen Jesus, um, you have, by your Holy Spirit, caused us to follow him. Um, Lord, I pray for all of us here as we consider your word together this evening that you would stir in our hearts, and that we would come uh, to know better what it is uh, that, that you want us to know. And Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um. Have you ever been promised something really big where that promise was broken, right? Where the other person f- uh, failed to fulfill that which they promised, right? Maybe it was a parent promising that they would come uh, to your dance recital. Um, maybe it was a boyfriend or a girlfriend promising a future together. Maybe it was an internship boss promising future employment, right? Whenever these things have happened, we often struggle uh, with our own responses. We are often pretty distraught when a, when a promise has been broken. Um, in the show, The Office, how many of y'all have seen The Office? Okay, good, good, good crew. Um, Michael Scott, who's kind of the, the, the main character of the show, once made a ridiculous promise. He believed that he needed to inspire the youth of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, So despite being a branch manager um, of a struggling paper company, he started his own foundation called the Michael Scott Foundation. And then he made a promise. He made a promise to a local third grade class of kids who struggled in school that if all of them graduated high school, that he would pay for their college. They were called Scott's Tots. And Michael Scott hoped that in 10 years he would be a millionaire And so he would have this fully funded foundation, but he made the promise without any ability to follow through with it. And he actually said, he said, I've made a lot of empty promises in my life, but this one was by far the most generous. Uh, (laughs) He had no guarantee. And when the time finally came to face them, they found out that he really wasn't going to pay for their college tuition, um, but that... You know, not only that, but he had the ability to assist with, with nothing. Um, he said it was his dream to inspire them. As he tried to let them down with a gift, uh, he actually uh, got up there and said, well, you know, the best way now to go to college is online with a laptop, and the best way to access that laptop is with a battery. Uh, and he let them down with a battery. Um, that was his gift to each of them, and that's where the episode ends And so we're left imagining the carnage of that broken promise. What type of trust issues, hope issues, or joy issues would those students have had going forward? Could they trust? Or or would they be then for self-protective and self-sufficient so that they don't get hurt in that way anymore? So today we're talking about joy, And joy is particularly challenging of a topic because we have been burned. And we've been burned over and over and over again. So is there anything outside of us that we can trust in 
that will bring us joy in the midst of all circumstances? Specifically, can we trust God's promises that no matter our circumstances, when we're facing the worst that life has to offer, can we cling to those promises? Can we risk that joy and that hope? Can we trust when things actually look and feel terrible? Right? So I want to talk about this sense of joy and this sense of hope because not only is this a value of Advent, but this is even um, one of the main reasons that we wanted to name our church Advent. Because it's in light of the fact that Jesus has come and Jesus will come again that we might have joy in all circumstances. And so in light of 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to talk about joy, but I want to do so by, by talking more specifically about three words and phrases from Peter's letter. First, I want to talk about living hope. What does that mean? Second, the inheritance that he's talking about here. And then finally, the third word being joy. So let's talk about living hope first. Verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He He says living hope here. And he says living hope comes from being born again. And this is picking up on language that, that John uses in his gospel as Jesus encounters Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wants to know how he can enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, you must be born again. Something new must happen in your life. And, and not only that, but your, your life must be made brand new. This metaphor assumes a need for regeneration. Um, What was dead must now be made alive. In other words, to have this living hope, we need to move from, from a state of being dead, dead in our sin, dead in who we are, to being made alive. We need to be born again. That's what is, is, is uh, the meaning of what Jesus says there. But in our, in our Christian subculture, uh, the phrase born again has taken on almost its own, its own meaning. Um, it's taken on a cultural identity within American Christianity. Um, it, it used to be a way of describing conversion and a way particularly of describing conversion in, in a culture where, uh, Chris, where, where Christianity was just sort of assumed. Right? You were born in the church. You were raised in the church. So how do I determine whether or not I actually am a saved member of the church? Well, I'm a born-again member of the church. Right? I, I have had this born-again experience. But over time... Somehow, that almost began to mean an emotional experience of conversion. That it more and more had to do with the emotional response that we have. There was a movie called Jesus Camp. Um, In 2007, it actually won the best documentary uh, best, yeah, documentary at the Oscars that particular year. And it's about uh, a Pentecostal camp where kids were hopefully growing in their faith. At least that was the idea behind it. And it centered around the emotional manipulation uh, of the directors of the camp and the instructors. And there's one particular part of the movie that was really fascinating where they interview this little eight or nine-year-old girl um, about what the difference is between an alive church and a dead church, right? Where a live church being where people have been born again and a dead church being one that's just sort of going through the motions. 
Well, in a live church, she says, yells and screams, yes, Jesus. That was actually what she said. It's all yelling and happy all the time. And the dead church sits gloomily in the pew like Eeyore. I just sort of sitting there along. I, and a live church claps and yells and dances, and the dead church doesn't. Now, that's way too oversimplistic of an answer, but it captures a lot of what we think when we hear the word born again and what we do with emotions in the Presbyterian context. To be clear, to be made alive by the Holy Spirit should actually stir something emotional in our hearts. It should make us happy to be born again, to have the Spirit's work in our life, making us what was dead now alive. But at the same time, we also recognize that our lives of faith must be built on something more stable than just our emotions or how we feel about God on any given day or our ability to manufacture experiences that give us those positive, kind of happy, clappy experiences again and again. So, So living hope initiates from regeneration and it initiates from new birth, but it's not this one and done sort of deal. Right? We're not called to spend our lives trying to remember or to recreate those types of feelings that we had when we were first born again. Rather, the new birth gives light to a living hope. Right? Meaning, this new birth gives light to a vision of the future what we're able to hold on to no matter our circumstances. Because though new birth should be an emotional high note, we don't actually live there. We come back down the mountain, right, of that emotional high. We experience the ups and downs of life. We experience rejection, sin, heartache, seasons of of unknowing, seasons of waiting. We experience persecutions, typically small in our part of the world, but maybe social persecutions or maybe um, getting passed over or having professional setbacks, right? We're doing ourselves a disservice if we try to paper over these painful parts of our life by seeking to return week after week to some sort of emotional, spiritual high that we experienced in the past, thinking that if we could just get back to that feeling, then our lives would be okay. Then that's sort of the joy that we want to express to the outside world. No, our hope doesn't come from continually reminding ourselves of our new birth. Our living hope comes from our living, resurrected Lord. Our hope is grounded in the fact that Jesus has risen, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, And all who are committed to Christ by faith share in this new and very much alive life of Jesus. Our living hope is that we will participate in the future in what Christ has experienced now. He just does it before us. Through our ups and downs, through persecution, through waiting, through rejection, through sin and heartache, we have this living hope. And we know this living hope through this new birth that we've been given by the Spirit. Um, Let's talk about inheritance, the second aspect of this. Peter says that Jesus has caused us through his words to receive an inheritance. Through his work, excuse me. 
This inheritance is connected to the Old Testament promise that we read about in the Old Testament reading earlier, that Abraham and his offspring would inherit the promised land. Remember, in Genesis, right, God was going to establish a people who would inherit a land, who would be a blessing to all of the nations, to all of creation. But there were stipulations to this covenantal promise. Abraham and his offspring were supposed to live like a set-apart and holy people. But of course, the Old Testament tells us time and time again they failed to do that. They can't do it, and neither can we. In our spiritual death, in our pre-regenerated state, we cannot manage to live life like a holy people of God. We can't keep our end of the bargain in order to stay or to have or inherit the land that He has promised us. But just as Christ has, has caused us to be born again out of no merit of our own, out of nothing that we come and bring to the table, so He offers us this inheritance in the future, even though we haven't earned it. And Peter says that this inheritance is three things. He says it's incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. It's incorruptible in that it will not decay. Right? Have you ever been on like a hike or a walk and you've smelled death before you saw it? Right? Um, when something perishes, it begins to rot. And when it rots, it begins to stink. And Peter is saying that this inheritance from Christ cannot perish. It will not decay. It will not stink. But also that, it is undefiled. Right? This inheritance cannot be desecrated. There's nothing that can be done to take this inheritance away. It remains pure. It remains holy. It remains sacred. Finally, it's unfading. Isaiah 40 reminds the people of Israel when it says, comfort, comfort my people. It says that they can be comforted because God has promised that He will reveal His glory to them. He will lead them on His own highway. And then Isaiah says that they can trust in His promises because though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the Word of God stands forever. The flowers fade. But, in other words, God's promises never fade. Though a dozen roses look and smell amazing, their beauty fades after a few days and they begin to smell. But God's inheritance will never fade. It's as secure as the Lord's words themselves. So this inheritance that we will have, this promised land, the new heavens and the new earth that will be joined together when Christ comes again, it cannot be snatched away. And as verse 5 says, it is protected by God and all receive it by faith. By faith in Jesus. And it's this promised inheritance that Peter says that we're to hold on to, that we're to cling to. And these promises are what enable us to actually live out in joy. And so let's talk about that, our third, our third aspect. What is the difference between joy and happiness? And when I was in college, in one of my psychology classes, we actually had a debate about this. Um, it was deep philosophical discussion about the difference between joy and happiness. And is there any difference at all? Um, and there was a group, actually a, a small group of Christians, maybe three of us in this class, that said that joy and happiness were different. 
that happiness was sort of this temporary uh, kind of emotional experience, and it was determined by your circumstances, and then uh, that joy is a, is a continual disposition, right, that you can be joyful no matter what your circumstances, and I look back on that, and I'm actually like, oh, yeah, we did pretty good. Uh, it wasn't too bad. Um, for a bunch of 19-year-olds. But Peter here is talking about joy in the same context as suffering, pain, and struggle. So he's obviously saying that it, can, it is not dependent upon your circumstances. right? How can one be joy-filled or how can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? Well, it's because joy is not a continual feeling of happiness. Peter acknowledges that as Christians, we won't always have it easy. That once you become a Christian, the life's problems don't magically just disappear. If anything, sometimes becoming a Christian can make your life harder. In this time period, Christians were subjected to physical persecution. And since so much of the, the economy revolved around participation in the Roman occult, it also made it difficult to make a living for yourself or to make friends with others. And Peter acknowledges these terrible circumstances. In verse 6, he says that these circumstances exist for just a little while. Right? And this isn't painting over the struggle with weightlifting type motivation. Right? Pain is temporary, but gains are forever. Right? Or something silly like that. That's not what he's saying here. No, he's saying that a day is coming when the present circumstances will cease. In other words, he's saying hold on hope because it won't always be like this. He's reminding them that God is in control over their suffering. He's still in control. And while while he doesn't intend life to be this way, he is using it for his ultimate good. So joy isn't ignoring our circumstances and pretending that everything is okay. No, it's a mature look at our surroundings. A mature and sober look at all of the struggles that we're going through. And it's weighing them on one side of the scale. And he's telling us, yes, okay, you have this on one side of the scale, but now take the other. And recognize what Jesus has done for you and what he promises to do again. One far outweighs the other. You don't gloss over the hurt, but you compare it to what is to come. Joy is saying that my current suffering, as painful as it has been and continues to be, is nothing compared to the gifts that I have been promised in the past. that I know are mine now in the present because of Jesus, and that I have been promised in the future because of him as well. The Christian has joy because of both new birth and because of promised inheritance. The Christian has joy because the current circumstances of struggle and pain are temporary. Because when Jesus comes again in the second advent, we will inherit a true life of peace. We will experience this world as it was intended to be, where tears and sadness, where sickness and pain, where loss and grief, all of that will be no more, where toil from work, disappointments and and passed over promotions and coworker conflicts, all of those things will be no more, where relationships with our parents, our children, our roommates with our siblings, with our neighbors, all of these things will no longer be broken where our relationship with ourself, our self-hatred or self-loathing will not be anymore because death even itself has been defeated. This is the inheritance that we've been promised. It's the light at the end of the tunnel that we're going through. 
And that gives us joy that we can experience and that we can feel even now. And as we think more about what it means to extend joy in light of Christ's first and second coming, um, we need to remember that, that our joy actually never comes from pursuing or focusing on joy itself. Uh, that making joy a goal is a lot like you know, trying to drink water from a mirage. Right? You, you think that you're pursuing it, and the closer you get, the more you realize that it's actually disappearing. No, joy is a fruit. It is a byproduct of pursuing and focusing upon Christ. Peter says in verse 8 that joy doesn't come from seeing Christ. See, the people who he is writing to would not have physically ever seen Christ, much like us. It's not seeing that brings about believing, that brings about faith, but keeping our faith fixed upon him, remembering what he has done for us, all the ways that he's been faithful to us in the past, remembering that he came into our world, that he lived righteously when we failed, that he took our penalty for unrighteousness upon himself, that he defeated death in his resurrection, and that he's coming again. And when he does, all is going to be made right. That is where we fix our eyes, upon him and what he has done in the first and second advent. And when we do that, when we keep our eyes fixed upon him, then joy is a byproduct. So it's in light of Christ's coming and his promise coming again that we want to extend joy to others. And so let's apply that a little bit together as a church. Um, we want to open our homes to bless others. We want to be known as a party people. Right? As I talked about this a little bit last week, partying because a day is coming when we were going to have the best party ever. Right? So my application, throw a party. Throw a party and invite your neighbors and your coworkers. If you want, if you want to, to borrow the speakers that we have, we've got some in the office. I'm more than happy to let you borrow them for a little while. We have a projector. If you want to throw a World Series party this week, come and talk to me. I will gladly give you my projector. We want to do those sorts of things. Because Peter here reminds us that we have the reason to celebrate, to extend joy. We party to show ourselves and others that this life that is promised for us in the future party is going to be even better. That's why we do it. We can be a party people in the midst of a broken and hurting world because we celebrate that God is in our midst and that he will come again and set everything right. But not only that, we want to extend joy to others by giving of our time and our resources to bless them. So you might see that there's a, a pretty not that good looking QR code in your, in your pews. Um, we want to hear from y'all about where we can begin to partner with other missions, uh, mission agencies. Um, as we've said over and over and over again, we don't believe that God first began his work in this area when we showed up. He has been at work far before we ever got here. And there are things that you all know about that we don't, that we desperately want to hear. And we want to figure out where should we begin partnering where God is already at work. And finally, we want to take up intentional habits in our life that give us space and time to extend that joy. May we do what Rosaria Butterfield said in the, in the bulletin cover, if you flip to the 
the opening of your bulletin. It says, our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, child care, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Y'all, may our non-Christian neighbors hear, may they see, may they taste and feel the joy of the Christian faith. And may we be willing to invite them into all circumstances that we're going through, even when we're grieving, that they might experience and taste and see that we can grieve as those with hope and joy. May we invite others into our lives to do so, to say that we have an inexpressible joy filled with glory built on the promises of Christ. Because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let me finish with this. Um, many of y'all may have heard this, this story. Um, but it's a story that Tony Campolo tells at the end of his book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Um, and, and Tony Campolo is a pastor, a sociologist, theologian. And he tells this famous story of when he was in Hawaii. Um, and one night, because of all the time change of travel, he couldn't sleep. It was about three in the morning, and he began to look for a place to go and, and just to be. And he found this little dive. Um, I, he kind of describes it. It sounds like a Waffle House, but like a bad Waffle House. Um, and, and so uh, he gets in there, and he's drinking coffee and eating a donut at 3.30 in the morning. And in walks this group of provocatively dressed prostitutes. And while he's sitting there, he overhears one of them say, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39. One of the girls responded in this sort of nasty type way and says, well, what do you want from me, a birthday party? Do you want me to to get you a birthday cake and to sing you happy birthday? She answered, no, I I was just telling you. I, I don't want you to do anything for me. I've never had a birthday party in my life. Why would I want one now? Well, Tony, having heard this, went up uh, to a little later to the guy behind the bar. His name was Harry, um, behind the counter, I should say. And, and he asked, you know, do those girls come in every night? He said, well, uh, yes, they do. They come in every night. And not only that, he asked, okay, well, what, what's the name of the girl who said that she's never had a party? Well, her name is Agnes, and she is here every night. So he said, you, you know what I want to do? Tomorrow I'm going to come back. And we're going to throw her a birthday party. I'll get the cake. I'll get the decorations and everything. And Harry said, that sounds great, but you don't get the cake. I've got, I'm going to take care of the cake. I said, great. So at 2.30 the next night, he comes back. They decorate it. And Harry's wife or, or must have gotten the word out because it was filled wall to wall full of prostitutes at 2.30 or 3.15 in the morning. All of a sudden, 3.30 comes, and Agnes comes in with her friends again, and they all yell, happy birthday. She's stunned, right? Her her eyes begin to moisten, and and her legs buckle, and, and, and then all of a sudden, the cake comes out, and they sing her happy birthday, and there's candles lit, and everyone asks for her to cut the cake. Uh, they, we want some cake. Would you cut it? And she sheepishly says, you know, if it's okay with you, can I keep the cake? I'm going to walk it back to my apartment because it's right over there. I'm going to walk it back. Can I just keep the cake? Can I take it home? She did. Everyone was stunned in silence. And so Tony decided, well, 
What do you do when there's silence in a church? Well, you, this is a time to pray. So he prays. He prays for Agnes. He prays for her salvation. He prays for her health. And after the prayer, Harry leaned over to Tony with a bit of anger and he said, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Tony had the perfect response. He said, the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry famously said, no, you don't. There's no church like that because if there was a church like that, I would go to that church. Y'all, may Advent be that type of church. A church that throws parties for folks who are struggling. For a church that throws parties for people who feel unseen. But helping them to see and taste and know that their Lord sees them, that He is in our midst, and that He is coming again one day. May we be those people who can say, taste and see that the Lord is good, extending the grace of Jesus Christ to them. Would you all pray with me under that end? Our Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for um, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom that you are bringing, and that it is a party. Lord, that there's nothing that we've done to earn it. There's nothing that we've done to enter into it but that Jesus is uh, not only the master of the feast, but he is also our very invitation. And so, Lord, in light of all of that, we pray that we would be changed, that we would be a people who are filled with your joy, and that we would share that joy with one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.